the draw of space solar is that it supercharges the ordinary benefits of solar. We went to the moon in less than 10 years. It is definitely possible to do this more quickly. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about solar in space, launching an array of solar cells in orbit and then beaming down the power to Earth. Pretty crazy, right? It turns out that most of the underlying technology is there. We just need to get the costs in line and then the first brave folks to take that one small step. I think most of us have probably heard of this technology before. In fact, our guest tells us that satellites have been using solar to power their systems since the earliest days of the program. The first satellite to use solar panels was Vanguard one, which was launched in 1958. But I first got the idea to seek out our guests and do an episode on this technology while I was cutting the Amber Kinetics episode. Every day, the amount of solar energy that strikes the Earth could have powered all of human activity to date for all time. So why go the extra effort to design, construct, launch, assemble, beam, and receive power from orbit? Space solar eliminates most of the drawbacks of terrestrial solar, namely the downtime. If you look at a typical production curve for a solar farm, you may see energy begin to come online around 7, peak around 1, and then drop off around 7. If it's cloudy, rainy, snowy, dusty, that smooth curve may look very different. Studies have shown that in one month in Europe, for instance, solar power was only available 3% of the time. Space solar would provide baseload power, or energy that's always on, with no downtime, no fuel, and no need for storage. Our guest says they would position solar collectors in an orbit far enough away from Earth, about 22,000 miles so that they would almost never pass into the Earth's shadow. I'll post the rough image he drew during our interview online. In addition, the solar you're getting in the vacuum of space is much brighter and fuller than on Earth. In fact, most blue light on the light spectrum doesn't reach PV cells on Earth. In space, PV cells are specially designed to get that blue light as well. Our guest says a space solar design would consist of the following components. First, there's the array of PV solar panels, and these could measure a kilometer in diameter. Huge. The energy collected would then be beamed down using a transmitter, which would be attached underneath the PVs. And finally, there's the receiver down on Earth, which would collect the power from space. In episode 32, we first discussed wireless power, and I told you I'd eventually get back to the long-distance high-wattage power transmission. Today's the day. As we discussed then, there are really two ways. Microwaves are probably the most mature technology. Scientists like them because they don't break down in the atmosphere as long as there's a straight line to the receiver, you basically get everything that was sent. That's why we use microwave trucks for TV news. The signal's always perfect. And then there's the lasers, and this is where I think the real promise lies. Unlike microwaves, which would need a much larger array of receivers on Earth, the receiver for a laser transmission would be much smaller. However, more research is needed for that, considering the amount of power researchers like my guests want to beam down, which is in the order of a few hundred megawatts from a single space solar satellite. Our guests also points out some of the fundamental challenges of this technology, many of which you can guess. Launch costs, that beaming technology, and assembling in space. It would be cost prohibitive for astronauts to spend weeks assembling these arrays in orbit. No doubt it would be maddening to them, and you'd probably need Billy Bob Thornton to calm these guys down. His heart rate's racing. 
Hey, Pete, how you doing up there, Hoss? I give you a buffalo nickel if you'll calm down just a little bit. Whatever you say. But my guess says they are also developing a new technology, one they call Robotic Servicing of Geostationary Satellites, or RSGS, which is a fully functional space robot that can be remote controlled from Earth. My guess says, unlike astronauts, these robots don't have to take unexpected breaks like Mercury 7 astronaut Alan Shepard once experienced. Gordo, I have to urinate. Urinate? Uh, no, we did not think of that. This is only a 15-minute flight. Yeah, well, the man's been up there for hours. Could he just do it in his suit? Do it in the suit. Jose, permission granted to wet your diapers anytime, son. Great scene. Apparently, he was not only the first American in space, but the first astronaut to make special use of his spacesuit. With the new innovations in wireless power transmission, lowering launch costs through the efforts of companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, we may soon have the right stuff to make space solar a reality. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Jaffe, spacecraft engineer and lead scientist on the space solar effort for the Naval Research Laboratory in Washington, D.C. I had an opportunity to meet Dr. Jaffe in person, and he was kind enough to take me on a tour of the Satellite Fabrication and Testing Center at NRL. Now, this is a historic place, and if you have any interest in space, you'd be geeking out just like I was. GPS was developed there. That Vanguard 1 satellite I mentioned earlier was also manufactured at NRL. Dr. Jaffe he showed me rooms and equipment where scientists simulate the rigors of space, like vacuum chambers, harmonics rooms, and one setup they simply called the shake and bake. Now, I got to take plenty of pictures, but the one device I was not allowed to take a picture of was the RSGS. But I did get permission to share a rough sketch of it on our website. I guess my drawing skills must be poor enough not to endanger national security. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Paul Jaffe. here with Paul Jaffe, spacecraft engineer, Naval Research Laboratory, and Paul, <laughs> space solar. Wow. What's left to refine before we can start installing solar panels in space? So the functions have already been demonstrated and for some time. The two main ones are collecting the sunlight and then transmitting that collected sunlight as energy to where you need it. And that's one of the big draws is being able to send it essentially globally. You could even think a communication satellite as already doing that, right? It has solar panels. It collects sunlight. It transmits transmits your satellite TV or your satellite radio signal to wherever you need it. The difference, of course, is that the amount of power it's sending is minuscule, right. right? It's not enough for you to power anything. So that brings us to one of the key technologies for space solar, which is power beaming. And there's a lot of different ways you could do that, and there have been some interesting and even compelling demonstrations through the preceding decades of power beaming. But the fact is that power beaming technology is not at a state right now where it is ready for space solar. There's still quite a few things that have to be done. Advances in like recent years suggest that those should be achievable and it's just a matter of pursuing them and making the effort at integrating those technologies. Is that what you're working on right now, the beaming part? Power beaming is definitely crucial and because it has many applications besides space solar, it is of key interest, right? Let's say, miraculously, next year, practical fusion is demonstrated. <laughs> Everybody says, all right, we're going to change all of our coal plants to fusion plants. Space solar might be less of an imperative in that case, although space solar has a huge advantage because it doesn't need an existing grid infrastructure to get power somewhere. If you have the power beaming technology, you are equipped then to realistically pursue practical space solar. That's the part we're waiting on. So one of the advantages I see with this is that not only would weather no longer be a problem, but nights 
would be eliminated as well. Are you considering setting these up in a geostationary orbit or in a geosynchronous? Yes, yeah, so geostationary and geosynchronous are really similar. Usually geostationary refers to when it's in the Earth's ecliptic plane. Geostationary orbit is about 35,000 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, 22,000 miles, so it's quite far. The reason that's an attractive orbit is because the orbital period is at the same speed that the Earth's rotate. So this is why you can set up a satellite TV dish and point it at one place in the sky and always get the signal because to the ground observer, it looks like the satellite is just kind of hanging out up there. Yeah. So that's attractive for space solar because like, well, you point your power receiver at the point in the sky and then just put a series of satellites around the Earth to cover the whole area that you want to service. You definitely don't have to use geosynchronous orbit because you could make a constellation of satellites in lower orbits, much like we do for GPS. It's a little bit more complicated because you have to have handoffs between different satellites, but it certainly could be done. And I will amplify what you said. The draw of space solar is that it supercharges the ordinary benefits of solar, right? right. Like if you think about photovoltaics, they're almost kind of magical, right? <laughs> I mean, you just stick this thing out and electricity comes out of it sure. and you don't have to give it fuel. It's kind of amazing, right? The downside, as you pointed out, is nighttime, of course, clouds rain, the atmosphere, by capturing that sunlight in space where it's brighter than the best desert on the clearest day at noon right, yeah. by at least 40%, that's huge. And the fact that it can be 24-7 is enormous, right? Because that means now if you have any storage, it can be pretty small. You don't have to bank power for like days or weeks. You could probably do it for hours if you needed. As you pointed out in geosynchronous orbit, the satellite would be in eclipse for less than 1% of the time, and it would happen at like very predictable scheduled interviews. It's actually at a local midnight near the autumnal and vernal equinoxes. It's about as close to base load as you're going to get. And I think that's what we're getting at. When the Earth is in the darkest side, are you still going to be able to collect solar and beam it yeah. to uh, a receiving point at night? I'll yeah. take a picture of what you're drawing I, here. <laughs> so so the way to think about this, so you know, the Earth's axis is inclined. Yeah. The sunlight's coming in. Here's the Earth's shadow. The vast majority of the time, the satellite is not on Earth's shadow. It will go for like months and months and months without ever being in the Earth's shadow. And it's only around those times of the equinoxes where it starts to go in the shadow. And that happens at midnight for about an hour. Okay. So, But average over the year, better than 99% of the time, it's in sunlight. Compares favorably with any power plant that you'd have to take down for some percentage of the time for maintenance or what have you. So. Okay. And so do you have two receivers on the close side of the sun and behind the Earth? I'm sure you got words for that. <laughs> but, uh, so you could service a single receiver with different satellites if you needed to. Yeah. One way to do it if you're using the geosynchronous case is you could store power for two hours yeah. and you could be fine with one satellite. But if you do two satellites, that's another way to do it. There's a lot of different ways mm -hmm. you could address that. Okay. Are these PV cells like we see on Earth? I'm in North Carolina. We got a lot of solar farms. So what's the difference between what we're seeing on the ground and what we would be firing off into space? Pretty similar. Yeah. The use of photovoltaics in space dates back to the beginning of the space age. NRL actually launched the first satellite that used solar cells called Vanguard back in 1958. Important thing to recognize is the solar spectrum of space is different. There's more blue because it's not scrubbed out by the atmosphere. The cells we usually launch into space are actually designed specifically for space and that's where they work best. Mm -hmm. And because there is more sunlight there and it's more efficient, you can collect more sunlight per unit area in space with a solar panel than you would be able to do on the ground. Every few years, PV cells get more efficient 
efficient. The standard cell is about maybe 18-ish percent. Say we would get a raise up in space, the PV technology might make a huge advance. And then we'd want to swap these cells out with newer technology. But my guess is that the expense is really getting it up there in the first place. So how do we overcome the fact that we're going to put solar cells up there and then we're going to find a much nicer model and be compelled to want to swipe it out? I'm going to digress for a second here and talk a little bit about some of the things that contribute to the cost, which you've astutely observed is a really big consideration for implementing a space solar system. First, launch costs still pretty expensive to put stuff in space. The trend for that looks really encouraging because we've got SpaceX now like <laughs> <Right>. regularly <laughs> reusing their rockets. And Blue Origin is not that far behind them. The second factor is the cost of actually manufacturing the space hardware. Historically, most of our satellites are kind of like these artisanal crafted creations with lots of touch labor, right? They're really mm -hmm. expensive. They're for the most part one of a kind. Well, we just took a tour. I appreciate that. And I didn't realize how much is actually being fabbed in the facility. It's like a Lamborghini factory. <laughs> in there. You know? Yeah. So Lamborghinis <laughs> aren't cheap. No. And if you want to make a cost-effective solar power satellite, you will need to use mass production. And the great news on that front is that we are seeing real mass production in the space industry now. For like the last five years or so, we have these space startups. And this will drive down that factor of the cost of the space hardware. And that's sure. absolutely essential. Tying it back into your question, because the pieces are going to be mass produced and will be essentially setting up modular elements, if you need to upgrade something, it should be relatively straightforward. This is not going to look like the space station where it's all <laughs> these crazy different pieces built in different countries and assembled. There'll be pieces that are coming off an assembly line. And if you say, well, we got the next upgraded version of the solar collector, we'll just start sending those up now. I should point out, we have in orbit today satellites that have been operating for decades yeah. with the solar arrays that they launched with. <laughs> it's okay if you don't replace the solar panels every year. The other two cost factors are specific power, the amount of power you can get down per unit mass that you put in space. And a lot of the work we've been doing here at the Naval Research Lab has focused on figuring out how to drive that cost down. And then the fourth thing is you're going to have to have something on the ground to receive this, right? Yes. And that's not going to be free. No. So <laughs> if that is going to cost more than 100 times the area of solar panels, it's going to be harder to make the economic case close. And this is another area where there's been not too much work related to the power beaming. This is essentially a power beaming receiver. There needs to be work in that area. Well, let's talk a little bit about the power beaming. We discussed briefly in a residential wireless power episode, but for high voltage, long distance transmission, it seemed like microwaves was the choice of those folks. Is microwaves still where it's at? Depends on the application. Uh -huh. So for solar power satellites, there are advantages and disadvantages of both microwave and laser, and we'll throw in millimeter wave there too, mm -hmm. just for completeness. The areas of the electromagnetic spectrum that you focus on are largely driven by what gets through the atmosphere without a lot of loss. Mm -hmm. So microwaves excel in this, even if you're in a monsoon rainstorm, the losses yeah. are gonna be quite low. The nice thing about lasers is you can make the transmit and receive surfaces a lot smaller. And this is just a function of the physics of the wavelengths. Mm -hmm. If you are operating a solar power satellite in geosynchronous orbit, 22,000 miles away, at 5.8 gigahertz, which is a newer Wi-Fi frequency, and you had a kilometer diameter transmit antenna to get about 90% of that transmitted power, you would need a three and a half kilometer 
diameter receiving area. Really? Okay. So that's quite large. Yeah. Now, if you're doing the same thing with laser, those areas become much smaller. But this introduces a second challenge, and that is the power density, right? You've talked on your show in the past how one of the advantages of nuclear is it has high power density, and one of the disadvantages of solar is it has a low power density. For space solar to be effective, and it will depend on the context, whether it's for the utility grid or for a remote installation, mm -hmm. you have to look really carefully at the power density and understand what the application can tolerate. Often the first question that people ask about power beaming or for solar power satellites is, is this going to fry birds? Like, yes, be, yes. Be, be, I had a lot of my friends ask about this. Yeah, so even engineers who haven't looked at this, it's a natural question to ask. It's like, well, mysterious <laughs> energy going through the air sounds scary and dangerous, right? The fact is you can easily design a system that will be below any of the safety thresholds that are set by international bodies on this. That's no problem. There's essentially zero chance that the system will malfunction and suddenly... <laughs> Golden eye. <laughs> right, yeah, right. So the chance of that is essentially zero. The challenge, though, is if you're keeping that power density low, does it have the utility you need? Our focus has principally been military applications, and if we have to send tankers across the sea to fill fuel trucks, that's a lot of work on the logistics side. And if you could just send the energy straight from space, that's super attractive, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, it is. But you still have to come to a place where you're balancing the power density limitations with the costs of logistics. And I want to clarify what you said earlier. We've got a kilometer diameter array in space, and it's 35,000 yeah, kilometers up, mm -hmm. and then it's beaming down, and the receiver would need to be three kilometers diameter? About three and a half kilometers in diameter to get 90% of the beam. You can think of this like a flashlight, and you can make as small a receiver as you want, but you won't receive that much of the power. In some cases, you don't care. If you're trying to get power to a disaster area, and you're only using 5% of the power, that's okay, because yeah, right. you got the power where you needed it. You're saving lives because you have power when otherwise you might not. Clearly for a utility grid application where economics is going to be vitally important, probably not going to be okay with just capturing 5% of the beam. No. So no. Is this one large receiver, a three kilometer dish? Or? You could think of it as like an array of wire antennas. Rectennas is what it's called, rectifying antennas. And this is again for the microwave case. For laser, the receiver would look a lot more like a normal photovoltaic, would be smaller. And the size of the receiver and the transmitter really scale in proportion to the wavelength. So they example I gave you is for 5.8. If you go to 35 gigahertz or a shorter wavelength, those things get smaller, but you still have to keep in mind whatever your power density limitation might be. Sure. And I'm sure everyone listening here is going, okay, I'd rather have for the laser a much smaller receiver than a three kilometer array for microwave. So my guess is the drawbacks that lasers need a little bit more time. Is that? The lasers are a little bit farther behind in terms of the technology readiness, but not that far. NRL has done laser power beaming demonstrations. People around the world have done laser power beaming demonstrations. Power beaming demonstrations in both laser and microwave are happening all over the world. Yeah. The Japanese have been hitting this really hard. The Chinese more recently have been putting lots of resources into it. I can't even keep up with the <laughs> papers coming out of China at this point on space solar and power beaming. The size of the transmitters and receivers, like I said, scales with the wavelength. And then also the safety level is a function of wavelength as well. So it turns out that 1,500 nanometers, you can have up to 1,000 watts per square meter, mm -hmm. and it's still perfectly safe. This is one of the reasons, I don't know if you've talked about them yet, but in the consumer arena with the wireless power folks,
folks. There's one that's doing lasers called Y-Charge okay. that is specifically picked this wavelength because you can have a higher power density. That gives you a big advantage if you're trying to cram a lot of power into a small area and still maintain the safety. Well, that's good. We haven't even talked about how much power we would be beaming down. A kilometer, diameter, array, how much would that be making? The power beaming link <laughs> is independent of the power you want to get through it other than setting the power density. For solar power satellites, you definitely are talking about megawatt or gigawatt scale for utility grids. Mm -hmm. For military or remote installation applications, you probably would be looking at 10 kilowatts up to like about 10 megawatts. Okay. So no, what I was asking was how much power can a one kilometer diameter array make? Yeah, so it depends on the PV efficiency and the conversion efficiency, you assume, yeah. but it's going to be on the order of 250 megawatts. Oh, really? Wow. So like a coal plant, a natural gas plant. Now, at the risk of getting a little too complicated, <laughs> there's two surfaces for solar power satellites that you have to think a lot about when designing the architecture of the implementation. So one is the one we've been talking about, the power transmitting aperture, which for microwave would be big, for laser would be small. The other is that power receiving aperture that you mm -hmm. have either your photovoltaics or like reflectors to some heat engine or sun pumped laser or something. Now these are different and as the satellite orbits, they do not necessarily have to be coplanar. Well, most of the time they won't be. So there's this question of how do you get the energy from where it's being collected to the transmit aperture. And there's been a lot of different approaches to that. One is say, just use reflectors and have like one surface, like the work we've done here at NRL centers around what we call the sandwich module as the solar cells on top, the DCRF conversion in the middle, and then the antenna on the bottom. You could make a big array of these and use reflectors to always illuminate the top. But there's other ways that you could do it. So you can increase the amount of power you collect by using these lightweight reflectors, mm -hmm. which in turn helps improve your specific power. But this is also another technology area where limited work has been done. Okay, and how should we think of lasers in terms of voltage. I mean, I work in transmission. We do a lot of 500 kV, 100 kV. Is it being transmitted down in large kilovolts? How are we thinking about that? It's probably simpler to think of it in terms of the wattage. Okay. Because the output of the receiver, you have a bunch of latitude, just like a regular <laughs> solar array where right. you can attach the cells either in series to increase the voltage or in parallel to increase the current. At the end of the day, you're most interested in the amount of power that's coming sure, out of it. Yeah. So probably most straightforward to think of it in terms of watts. Just straight wattage. Okay, and then it gets transformed down on the ground. Right. Okay, good deal. When we took the tour, you showed me something. You told me, don't take a picture of it. <laughs> it's that new. Robotic servicing of geostationary satellites, RSGS. Basically, a robotic repairman in space. This is exciting stuff. You said that you got a little bit torn what program you wanted to work on, but thank goodness we're working on space solar I was going to say, space robots, right? Like, who, <laughs> who wouldn't want to work on that? Right, but even the, the RSGS, the space handyman, you think will be critical to your program, right? Because the things that will be in space will be quite large, I don't think it will be easy to get away from having to do some assembly in space, and robotics will be critical for that. Now, it's important to recognize also that having the ability to assemble stuff in space has lots of utility. One of the reasons satellites are the size they are now is because it's like, what can you cram into <laughs> a payload fairing, right. right? If you didn't
didn't have that limitation, you could build huge communication satellites, huge imaging satellites, all kinds of things. There's a lot to be said for in-space assembly capability and move bravely into the future here and build stuff in space and on the moon and elsewhere. Right. And I know that just from doing transmission projects, it gets expensive when the crews come out. So I can imagine that would considerably explode the cost. You had to have an astronaut up there doing the assembly as opposed to a remote control robot. Absolutely. Right? Robots don't need to eat. They don't complain. They'll work through the night. They'll need to take bathroom breaks. Right. <laughs> That's right. You've been working on this for several years now. Where are you in the process and where are we headed? We're at a really exciting time. The prototypes that we made of the sandwich modules, we are preparing to do a flight experiment with. Oh, yeah. And we have other projects ongoing in power beaming. I would say watch this space. I would hope that within the next couple of years, we have exciting results that we can report. It's certainly something that I think gets a lot less visibility than other sources of energy. Most mm -hmm. people that I talk to have never heard of it. Even fewer <laughs> people have heard of it than nuclear fusion. And I think it's really important to make investments in these farther term ideas. Space solar, in a sense, has fallen through the cracks. The challenge for it is it sounds like a space project. So people say like, oh, well, NASA should do it. NASA's like, well, it sounds like an energy project. Maybe the Department of Energy should do it. And the Department of Energy will say, well, that sounds like a space project. Have you talked to NASA? The Japanese and the Chinese have already solved this problem and they are charging ahead with the development. It's an interesting we, your group because you're not NASA and you're not Department of Energy. You're the Department of Defense. Defense uses lots of energy. Yes, so that's so very. We, we have uh, vested interest in using that energy wisely. And it's worth pointing out that if space solar works out, it is hard to realize all of the implications it's going to have, not just for energy, but for geopolitics. Imagine that a country now has the equivalent leverage of what Saudi Arabia has now for oil, where they have this excess capacity. And now imagine a country that can send clean energy anywhere in the world on demand. That's something where the U.S. would probably prefer to be a producer rather than customer. No doubt. So. One of the things that was very interesting and taking me on that tour, that made me think of some things. And one of them was you showed a lot of the equipment that you use. And by the way, they fabricate all kinds of satellites here. So you had a lot of your stress tests. So you had frequency shaky tests. We actually, we actually <laughs> call it shake and bake. Shake and bake. That's right. And I always love talking about this, especially when I came from oil field was how do you make it tough? How do you keep from it breaking? In a lot of ways, it needs to be tougher than something on the ground. Yeah. Space is a unique environment. There's the temperature extremes. There's radiation, depending on what orbit you're in. There's also the risk of space debris or solar activity, coronal mass ejections and solar wind related challenges. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of testing to ensure that the satellites we make today are going to be able to survive those. Fortunately, we've had satellites in orbit now for decades and we've shown that we can contend with a lot of these challenges without trouble. Undoubtedly, space solar would be on an unprecedented scale and would sure. present new challenges. That said, space does have a lot of advantages over the ground. Fewer vandals in space. <laughs> Security is a little bit easier. That's right. You don't have to wipe the dust off periodically or wash them. It's not going to get blown away in a hurricane or a tornado. There's also some man-made issues in space. The space junk. For sure. And would some of this get eliminated where you're not in that orbit where most of the satellites are? Because I think people, you know, they saw WALL-E. Right. They saw you right. know, gravity and all this. And it just seemed like there's just a lot of crud up there. And so how do you get away from the busy parts of the orbit? Space junk is undoubtedly a real problem. It is the worst in low Earth orbit, about 2,000 miles up. And that is not where we would be likely to put any solar power satellites. You still have to move your mass through that region. That said, we are talking about things that are very large. You would expect them to probably take some hits and need potential repair or replacement at times. But you think you're going to be high enough up. Yeah. And again, at the risk of getting a little technical, space debris in low Earth orbit is problematic, not just because it's more numerous 
numerous, but because the differential speeds okay. involved are very high. If you go higher, like to geosynchronous orbit, the space debris is less, and the debris that is there is moving at a slower speed, so it has less kinetic energy. It's going to do less damage if it hits you. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole range of orbits between low Earth orbit and geosynchronous orbit that have very little debris in them just because they haven't been used as much as those two orbits for satellites. Space debris, clearly have to think about it, but it's not a showstopper. So where do you see this in the future? It seems like you could set a lot of these things up and start beaming them down all over the world, right? Frankly, a lot of it depends on priorities, policy yeah. priorities. We went to the moon in less than 10 years. It is definitely possible to do this more quickly. The real question is whether it makes sense. There's all these different energy options for the grid that are competing. This is just one among many, and there would have to be a compelling reason that it would make sense for the grid. The specialized applications, I think it's an easier case to make because those pay a much higher price for energy. I think it would be possible, certainly before mid-century, to have demonstration systems and probably even operational systems. The Chinese and Japanese both are planning to do demos by 2030 timeframe. I think with sufficient application of resources, we could certainly do the same. Would it make sense to have this as an application on Mars? There have been quite a few papers looking at space solar for Mars, and it's an intriguing possibility. Probably more people have been looking at it for the moon, simply because yeah. on the moon you have a two-week nighttime, and you need a pretty big battery to last <laughs> two weeks, even if you have a two-week day to charge it up. For the space applications, there's quite a few opportunities, and in some ways those are easier because you don't have to go through as thick an atmosphere, you don't have to worry about allocating the spectrum. That's one challenge we haven't really talked about. The spectrum for microwave or radio wave power transmission is already really crowded, mm -hmm. right? Everybody's using Wi-Fi, using Bluetooth. There's not a huge swath of spectrum that's just waiting to be used for transmitting power in the radio waves. Doesn't mean that it can't coexist, but there's a challenge there. All right, Paul, I'm going to go ahead and finish and do our lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Decarbonize it. It's finite. Crude oil. Decarbonize it. It's it's finite. <laughs> <laughs> Nuclear that's already decarbonized. Great on being low carbon, obviously has to be safe. Coal? Also needs to be decarbonized and is great for some stuff, but I think is going to have a harder time competing into the future. Wind. Wind is great. Use it where it makes sense. Terrestrial solar. Growing fantastically. I think it is probably the one to beat. It uses the fusion reactor in the sky that we can already take advantage. Are we calling this space solar? What do we? What do you like calling it? I just call it space solar because it's short okay. and snappy and people can understand it. <laughs> okay, all right. Space solar. It supercharges the benefits of regular solar. It's clean, it's constant, it's globally transmissible, it's essentially infinite, and it's critical to explore it. Definitely needs more attention. We neglected it at our peril because we don't lead, someone else will. Biofuels. I think they have a place. They've got the high energy density that you need for a lot of applications that will require that for some time. Hydroelectric. Modernize and maximize. Yeah. Geothermal. Use it where it makes sense. Right. Energy storage. Definitely important. I'm excited by the growth we're seeing in that area. Electric vehicles. All right, so I have a big thing here because EVs is kind of another passion of mine. So. <laughs> you have quite a bit here, actually. Y yeah, I, I haven't <laughs> consulted my notes that much. So I know from listening to your podcast, that are you still a Camaro owner or are you a former? Yeah, I still okay. have the Camaro at home, yes. So I used to have a Camaro. I understand the draw <laughs> of just 
pushing the gas down and hearing that engine purr and just feeling the power, right? But the fact is, EV performance now is totally devastating, right? Oh, I've like, sat in one, yeah. Like, the 0 to 60 records are held by a plug-in Porsche and Tesla, right? right? So the fact is that they're here, they're going to dominate. And then you got the electric motorcycles that are also similarly dominating. Yeah, I'm kind of looking at those too, yeah. The, the thing with the EVs that most people, I think, don't realize yet is how accessible they are and how much time and money they will save, right? We bought a year and a half ago a used 2013 Nissan Leaf, and it really opened my eyes. You can get a used Nissan Leaf for under $10,000 pretty easily. I drive that thing every day for the last year and a half. Anyone who's looking to buy a car is doing themselves a disservice if they don't at least look at plugins. Is this also a car buying guide? So as I said, I've been listening to all of your podcasts, and I have a list of topics and guest suggestions that I'm going to give you. Oh, please. That, uh, yes. Don't want to <laughs> get too sidetracked but I definitely am big on the EVs. You're really putting all the other guests to shame, I gotta tell you. <laughs> okay, and then two more, energy efficiency. It's win-win, do it prudently. Yeah, and then finally, you said you just listened to Michael Benderbauer, nuclear fusion. I would love to see nuclear fusion. You can't win if you don't play, so we should definitely be investing in it. Clearly, we've been at it for a while, so it'd be nice to see some hopeful developments there. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much, Paul, appreciate you. That was Dr. Paul Jaffe, spacecraft engineer for the Space Solar Program with the Naval Research Laboratory in Washington, D.C. I want to thank him for showing me around the facility. I have plenty of pictures, what I could take pictures of at least, on energy-cast.com and on Instagram at Host Energy. I also want to thank Daniel Perry for setting up my visit to NRL and getting me past all the proper security channels. I also want to let you know that in addition to Dr. Jaffe, Daniel also helped me get three more interviews with NRL researchers and we'll be releasing those episodes over the next few months. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 50. Another huge milestone for the show. You can tell I wanted to make this one special, and I hope I lived up to it. Thank you again for all the support and helping me get the word out. I also want to thank all the folks who've reached out to me for guest ideas and all the communications professionals out there who make setting up these interviews so much easier. We've got plenty more ahead in 2019. Be sure to join us next week when we learn about the energy source called Carncraft that Sweden is using that is clean, carbon-free, reliable, and ready for use in the developing world to deliver energy to hundreds of millions of people without power. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.